You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Let's open by butchering a little Shakespeare, shall we? We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. The St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V. In Shakespeare's telling, King Henry rallied his heroic, outnumbered troops and led them to an astonishing victory. And Shakespeare's not alone in that conception. Throughout the centuries, historians have celebrated Henry's victory in the Battle of Agincourt as a triumph, a remarkable upset. But the truth of the matter probably doesn't live up to the lionization. In 1415, Henry was leading his army through France as part of the Hundred Years' War. By October, the campaign was going poorly. Henry's soldiers were being diminished by disease and supply shortages, hungry, sick, and tired. They began a withdrawal towards English-held Calais. But on October 24th, they found their path blocked by the French forces of Charles d'Albret. France had every advantage. They had superior numbers, superior armaments, and were well-provisioned, while Henry's forces were weakened and desperate. Furthermore, the French had more good fortune on the horizon. Some 7,000 reinforcements were on their way to meet the standing forces. When the sun rose on October 25th, some of the French thought the English might just turn tail and run. All Charles had to do was hold his forces in place, defend against any English advance, and the day would be his. But instead, he advanced. It's not clear why. He may have seen a short advance by Henry's troops as threatening. He might have been taunted into it. But what is clear is that it was a disaster. The field Charles's troops had to cross was recently plowed and recently soaked with rain. The French soldiers slogged slowly through knee-deep mud. They slipped and slid and fell, all while Henry's longbowmen fired mercilessly upon them. By the time the French line met the front, they were wounded, tired, and disordered. Henry's forces mopped them up, killing most of them, taking the rest prisoners, who they subsequently killed, too.
After Agincourt, Henry's standing changed. The English turned the war around. All because Charles didn't stay put. There are dozens of stories like this. Hundreds, even? If Robert E. Lee hadn't ordered Pickett's charge at Gettysburg, the Union might have lost the Civil War. If Lord Raglan had been more specific in his order to, quote, prevent the Russians carrying off the guns, Lord Cardigan wouldn't have sent the Light Brigade on a charge to their deaths. If Napoleon hadn't decided to march into Russia in the middle of winter, he might have conquered Europe. Ditto for Hitler. All these events have several things in common. They're mistakes. Made in a moment of great consequence that decided events far beyond their immediate reach. Also, they are totally, utterly unremarkable. Because mistakes, accidents, and oversights, they're baked into the nature of war. They're given. If they weren't, there'd be no reason to make war at all. Two armies would show up on a field, they'd do a quick head count and say, well, looks like you got 11,000 guys and we got 9,500, so congrats, you win. Good game, good game, good game. So I'm not interested in military blunders. At least, not for the purposes of this show. Elsewhere, I'm quite interested in them. But I'm not interested in regular matters, of course. In order to tell you a war story on this show, it would have to be truly exceptional, singularly bizarre, wholly inexplicable, completely jaw-dropping in its ineptitude and stupidity. So, here's that story. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Turks, Turks. Before we get started in earnest, allow me to address something. You may have noticed something of a pattern in a number of episodes of this show, where sometime around the third act, the floor falls out, and we plunge into a pit of uncertainty where the very premise of the story, the very basic question of whether the events actually occurred, pops up. So let's just say right here, this is one of those. But don't worry about that now. We'll cross that bridge when we're burning it. I'm not aware of any army trying that strategy. But then again, history's a long, dumb thing. Here we go. Joseph II, Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, although it hadn't really been the Holy Roman Empire for a good long while, was a better leader in peace than at war. Or he would have been, anyway, if he'd had the chance. He ruled the Austrian Empire from 1780 until his death in 1790. And from the moment he took the crown, he had an ambitious domestic agenda. More education, more religious freedom, greater economic freedom. He moved to abolish serfdom and the death penalty. He ended censorship, reformed the tax code and land rights, unified government bureaucratic structures. Joseph's end goal was to remake the Austrian Empire in the image of the Enlightenment. And he might have done a decent job. Who knows what he could have done if he hadn't nearly constantly been dealing with wars. Joseph would have been a great peacetime leader. But unfortunately for him, 
he was allied with Catherine the Great. In contrast to Joseph, Catherine, Empress of Russia, was one of the all-time great war leaders, up there with Charlemagne, Alexander, Napoleon. Under her rule, Russia expanded over and over again into Crimea, into Georgia, into Poland, all the way even east to Alaska. But Catherine's greatest territorial obsession was the Ottoman Empire, and every time she went to war to get more Turkish land, Joseph was obliged by treaty to follow her into battle. Most people seem to agree Joseph was afraid of Catherine, and, like, rightly so. He spent most of 1787 trying to mollify her, working to convince her to please not go to war with Turkey again. And in a sense, it worked. Catherine agreed not to declare war on the Ottomans, but instead she did everything she could to needle the Turks in declaring it on her. And that, too, worked. In August of 1787, the Sublime Port, the central Ottoman government, declared war on Russia, and Joseph's Austrian Empire sighingly resigned itself to joining the fray. The last time he'd been forced into fighting on Catherine's behalf in 1783 and 4, he'd gotten nothing out of it. Russia had walked away with Crimea, and Joseph had lost territory to the Ottomans. So, if the Holy Roman Empire had to go to war again, this time they'd put their backs into it and really make a show. So Joseph, despite his own failing health, raised a number of armies to stake out the whole of the border between his Habsburg Empire and the Turks. The largest of these armies he led himself right to the front door of Belgrade, where the camp sat, dying of malaria, for six months, awaiting the chance to advance on Transylvania. In September, word reached Joseph that the Ottoman army was on the march and had crossed the Danube. Though he and his troops were both sick and disheveled, Joseph insisted on taking command of an army 100,000 strong to meet the Turkish forces. And it's that army who, on September 22, 1788, found themselves spending the night in Karensebes, in modern-day Romania. Karensebes is located at the confluence of the Timis and Sebes rivers, which at this point in the war formed the Western Front, with Austria holding the east and the Ottomans in the west. As the Austrian army bedded down, they knew the Turks were somewhere close. Maybe they were a couple of days away, or maybe they were right around the bend. Tensions were high, everyone was on alert, scouting units, at least one cavalry and one infantry, were dispatched to check the west bank of the river for the enemy. A little while later, the camp heard something. Well, two things, really. The first was unmistakable. A gunshot from the other side of the water, in the dark. Moments later, a call came from the same location. Some of the scouts were out there, yelling back across the river to the camp. Turks! Turks! they cried, over the sound of more gunfire. And with that, the Battle of Karensebes had begun. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. While the Austrian army was at the ready, they were still woefully unprepared for a midnight raid. When the battle cry went out, some of the troops apparently began to flee immediately back east into the night. Arguably, this was a smart move. As the non-deserters tried to form themselves up into defensive lines, they heard the galloping approach of cavalry, charging full bore across the river and into the ramshackled army, yelling, Allah, Allah! While the infantry tried to repel the charge, other gunfire started going off in the camp. It seemed the Turks had gotten a jump on the Austrians from all sides. More panic. Soldiers fired in all directions and shadows, more abandoned and ran for it. Some reportedly jumped in the river for... I don't know. I don't know what benefit jumping in the river would confer, but supposedly, some did. An officer called for artillery to be fired into the cavalry charge, but said cavalry charge was, by that time, more like an everyone scrum, so the cannons were firing basically indiscriminately. Indiscriminate firing was the name of the game for everyone, though, really. Anyone who wasn't abandoned in camp was instead in a shooting pen. And those abandoners were also producing trouble. They overturned carts and carriages, broke weapons, squished supplies, and mowed over one another in their attempt to flee. Joseph was awoken by the chaos, but he was, at this point, so sick that he couldn't really provide much leadership. He managed to mount up in hopes that he could encourage his men to hold the line, but by the time he made his way to the front, well, there was no front. Just a big messy stew of disorganized melees and screaming retreats. As the sun rose on Karensebes, the Austrian army had already abandoned it and withdrawn to the east. The casualties were 10% of Joseph's fighting force. That's 10,000 men, died, injured, or AWOL. The Turks took control of Karensebes, but not until two days later, when their forces arrived because there were no Turks at the Battle of Karensebes. Let's rewind a bit, huh? Back to the cavalry unit who were sent across the river to scout for Ottoman forces, they didn't find any. But what they did find instead was a group of civilians. Some accounts say those civilians were traitors, but most say they were Roma, better known to Americans by the pretty racist XM gypsies. Whoever precisely it was the scouts ran into, they had alcohol to sell. Again, some differences here. Some accounts say it was brandy, others say schnapps. Whichever. The important thing to know is that the Austrian cavalry bought a bunch of booze and began to drink themselves stupid. So far, so good. I mean, as we know, the Turks are still a two-day march away. So what's the difference if your advance team is soused, right? Remember, though, 
there's a second scout group, infantry, out there too. And they happened to stumble upon the drunken cavalry unit, who by this point were straight blasted and having a gay old time. Are we heading for a case of mistaken identity here? Not quite. The infantrymen recognized their horse-backed counterparts and approached, asking if they could join the party. Which you'd think would be cool, right? I mean, these are brothers in arms, after all. Sent out on adjoining missions in the dangerous dark while all of their confederates get to rest in camp? What possible reason could there be to not invite your fellow Austrians in for a good shared glugging? Class war. Er, maybe not class war, precisely, but certainly class-ism. Cavalry were officers, professionals, upper crust. They didn't associate with lowly infantrymen. And to be fair to the snobby horsemen, the infantry of the 18th century were pretty lowly. There weren't any background checks or other kinds of vetting for who could join up, so military service was a good way for fugitives to avoid capture and punishment. Still, it was probably mostly good old-fashioned classism that caused the cavalry to answer, mind if we have some, with sod off. But sod off, the foot soldiers did not. Instead, an argument ensued. It escalated into a screaming match, a fist fight, a wrestling match, and then, finally, somebody fired. The gunshot wasn't aimed at anyone. It was apparently meant as intimidation, or something. And whoever had the bright idea to scream Turks Turks apparently just thought it'd be... funny? <laughs> I don't know. They were drunk, remember? It probably sobered them up a bit when the return fire started pelting them from their own base back across the river, though. It was a collective oh-shit moment for both units, and everybody made the split-second decision to gun it back for camp, hoping to avoid getting in trouble or, worse still, getting shot. So when, back in camp, the front line faced down a cavalry charge, what they failed to realize was that it was their own cavalry sprinting back to them. The shouts they heard, Allah, Allah, were in actuality German calls of Halt, Halt. The reason the Austrian forces felt surrounded is that they were by each other. And that is how, on September 22, 1788, the Holy Roman Empire lost the Battle of Cairnsebes to themselves. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So here we are, on the bridge, torches lit, with the question. Did this happen? I want to say yes. I want to tell you yes, so badly. And that is probably as good a reason as any to doubt it. Well, maybe not quite as good as any reason. The best reason to doubt this account is that this story, as you've just heard it, 
failed to coalesce into a static narrative until 1831. That's 43 years after it purportedly occurred. That isn't to say this story sprung full-formed out of nowhere. There are earlier reports, even contemporaneous reports of Cairnsebe's, but they all differ considerably. Some of these differences aren't very materially important, whether the army was at camp or on the march, whether the scuffle began with bands of scouts or two full columns, but other contradictions are more substantial. In a German political journal published 1788, no mention is made of the brandy and or schnapps or the ensuing fight thereover. Instead, the incident is put up to regular old fog of war. That report further mentions that during the fray, the Turks actually did attack, only to withdraw once they realized the confusion was already doing the job for them. At least one contemporary source attests to the basics of the incident, but says the whole thing was incited by a group of rowdy locals who rode into camp shouting Turks, Turks, and lighting fires in order to purposely confuse and rile the soldiers. One of these documents, an article in Real Zeitung, says eight of these Wallachians were caught and hung. Most critically, the number of casualties. Where the Austrian Military Journal of 1831 and most subsequent tellings put the number of losses at 10,000, most of the earlier accounts come to much smaller figures. A couple dozen, a hundred, even 1,200. Still pretty astounding numbers, but not anywhere near 10,000. It's possible, though, that the high number includes not just those killed and injured, but also those who went AWOL. Two of the reports I've read make mention of lots of soldiers either running away or being lost. Although, according to both of those pieces, the majority of the missing were eventually found or returned on their own. The case to be made for the version of the story I just took up your time telling feels admittedly like special pleading. Historians in favor of it say that the reason the real story took so long to make it to print is because of what an embarrassment the situation was. That there was something like a cover-up. But... Covering up 10,000 dead and injured is a pretty tall task. Still, if we accept the bit about the casualties having been misstated to include the displaced and deserting, we can piece together a version that's basically like that of above. That Joseph's army was in low spirits that might drive them to drink and fight is not at all far-fetched. That the troops might not be able to communicate or might misunderstand one another, such as with the halt-halt confusion, is also reasonable. The Austrian army was a patchwork of nationalities and languages. There were Austrians, of course, but also Germans and French, Czechs and Poles, Serbs and Croats. The Holy Roman Empire was, essentially, too big for its britches, with a whole bunch of people who had nothing, not even a language, in common, being asked to coordinate and fight under miserable conditions. So if there was an army in all of history positioned for a humongous cell phone, the one led by Emperor Joseph, was it. And there was at least one other army who seems to have fallen in much the same way. In 279 BC, the Gallic leader Brennus led an army into the Greek mainland, defeating Macedonian, Athenian, and Aetolian armies on his quest to reach and plunder the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. But upon reaching the city, there was a great and frosty storm that made their advance impossible. They were routed by Greek forces in the morning and retreated. That night, after a forced march back north, there was some confusion 
and a panic fell over Brennus's army, who attacked and killed one another, thinking, erroneously, that the Greeks had caught up to them. Brennus then committed suicide in shame, leaving his men to scatter and run. As with the Austrians, the Gallic army was made up of a rough and tumble assemblage of rival clans and countrymen speaking in different tongues and dialects. Of course, it's also possible that Brennus's story is exaggerated or made up. It comes down to us from two Greek historians who had plenty of reason to envision a world in which an attack on their country was foolhardy hubris. And one of those historians said that Brennus's method of suicide was drinking undiluted wine. The Greeks, see, believed that wine had to be mixed with water or else it was poisonous. And since I'm relatively confident that that's not true, that leaves some doubt as to the accuracy of things. I don't know what happened at Cairnseves. To me, it seems unlikely that the tale was made up whole cloth, but the account that's come down through time seems unlikelier still. What I do know is that the story of Cairnseves is a suspiciously convenient allegory. It's perfectly microcosmic of how Austrians might have viewed the whole of the war, a sick and confused emperor leading an unprepared and unmotivated army of drunken, classist foreigners into a useless, costly excursion for no appreciable goal. See, after the Battle of Cairnseves, the Austrian army managed to regroup, and they eventually won the war after three grueling years in 1791. But their victory was almost entirely Pyrrhic. They took next to no spoils or territory. Just as it had been years before, and just as Joseph had tried to avoid, in the end it was Catherine the Great who really won, having gotten Joseph to lay down his own men as pawns for her expansionist cause. But Emperor Joseph II never saw the victory. His health deteriorated so much after the retreat that he had to return to Vienna in November, where he took to his sickbed. With his army fighting the Ottomans, Belgium and Hungary both revolted against Austrian rule. Throughout the rest of the empire, peasant revolts and bread riots seized the country. Not a single nobleman came to his defense. Even his brother, Leopold, abandoned him to die. In January of 1790, a year before the war came to an end, Joseph withdrew all of his reforms and dreams for a peacetime Enlightenment kingdom. He died a month later, on February 20th. You can visit him in Vienna's imperial crypt, where 143 Habsburg royalty are entombed, among them 12 emperors and 18 empresses. But you'll know Joseph's when you see it, by its curious epitaph. As one of his last wishes, he himself ordered the inscription. Here lies Joseph II, who failed in all he undertook. From the land of Lincoln, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. Great, great, good work, puppy. 
Yeah, no, that's good. Make sure you bark more. Please, please bark a lot more. Yeah, no, that's very necessary. No, you're right. You're very right. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good that you do that. I'm dying inside. 